Welcome back to the Travels with Dante podcast, where we left off last time. Dante and Virgil just came upon the site of Count Ugolino and Archbishop Ruggieri. Today, we're going to hear the story from Count Ugolino's perspective. Yeah, so like we had come across these people, and Dante asks to hear their story of seeing one like gnawing on the back of the head of another, two men in one hole. And it, it starts with like a horrifying image of he stops biting into the back of, of this other guy's head and wipes his mouth on the hair of... <laughs> like a napkin. Oh. Yeah, like someone like stopping at their like big Italian dinner and like wiping a napkin of all the like pasta sauce on their face, right? Uh, and then he begins and he's basically like, you want me to tell... What I'm going to tell you is going to break your heart and begins to tell this story. Now, there's some things you should know before hearing, like hearing his version of the story. So this guy is Count Ugolino, and the person whose back of the head he's gnawing on is Archbishop Ruggieri, right? And so the first like thing of this is, so Ugolino and Ruggieri are kind of fighting over like position of power within Pisa, but they're actually like, they worked together. And the reason why they were working together is you're going to hear this tragic story of Ugolino starving to death with all of his sons and grandsons. But the first thing you need to know is that they allied together against Ugolino's grandson, Nino Visconti. And so he's talking about, like, his poor boys and everything and his, like, love for them when he actually, like, allies with Ruggieri to, like, take down his grandson. <laughs> and, like, which which actually does happen. And you're actually going to meet Nino Visconti in purgatory. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's the first thing that I think is important to keep in mind, right? And so the story is, is that... And then, like, when Ruggieri actually gets the position of Podesta that Ugolino wanted, he goes with troops against him, he fails, Ruggieri throws him and his sons and grandsons in this tower. So then the story that you hear is of Ugolino with his sons and grandsons in the tower, and they're putting bread in there for them every day. And then at one point, like, they actually hear the like them boarding up the part like the little slot where they would put bread and it's very clear that they're going to starve them to death but here's the thing is when ugolino describes it he says i heard my small son sobbing in their dreams for they were with me and they asked for bread which like when you hear that it sounds like oh he's in there with like toddlers like these these kids are like three five and eight but in actuality like his sons are full-grown men yeah, and not only that, but it's his sons and grandsons, right? And so he's speaking about this, like, like I as a father, like, mourning. And he, like, he like, genuinely is, but, like, there's more to this than that. Like, they're yeah. not his small sons. They're grown up. And also, like, this happened because he went against his grandson, Nino. So, like, there's not, like, there's more to the scene than that. So, like, the tower gets boarded up. And so they, like, know what's going on. And even, like, he, he really paints this, like, horrifying, tragic scene of, them starving one by one and the son's even basically saying like hey like you gave us flesh let us give it back to you so it's okay for you to eat us to survive and says uh father for us it would be much less pain if you ate us instead you close with with this wretched flesh now strip it off again and one by one actually they die and it's meant to like evoke such like indignation and pity like all of these things right and he says, like, all, like, one by one, they actually die. And then at the very end, he says, two days I called their names when they were dead. Then hunger did what sorrow could not do. So, like, the implication is that, like, he was so out of control that, like, he actually ate their bodies. So then think about what 
this act of vengeance does because he gets what he wants and that for all of eternity, he gets to like gnaw on the head of the Archbishop Ruggieri and like bite into him, right? Like pierce his skull. Uh, but here's the thing is, is like if that's what this is implying, this also means that every time he takes a bite mm. out of Ruggieri, it also calls to mind the action of eating his sons. So it's like, and so in some ways, Ruggieri is getting revenge on him. So both of them, the act of vengeance is an act of vengeance against the other. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, this is how they will spend all of eternity is torturing each other with the same action that also tortures themselves. Mm -hmm. And think about like what this says actually about the nature of vengeance of when we actually like bend all of ourselves towards vengeance. Right. And you see the movie too, where like the person's like family's killed. So then they like spend all of themselves like, but like to like take revenge, Mm -hmm. but they don't have a life outside of that. So then when they do like have the revenge, they don't know what to do because all of their life has been spent on it. Yeah. So they get, they both get exactly what they want of like vengeance against the other. But the act of vengeance is also torture for oneself. Yeah. And part of this as well as like Ugolino's actions, how it affects his sons and grandsons, mm-hmm. right? And our sin is never our own. Like it always affects others. And so that's part of this too. And he actually says like, for if Count Ugolino suffered blame, having betrayed you of your fortresses, you for your part should not have nailed his sons to such a cross. Yeah, like sin actually spreads and affects everything. And then you had mentioned as well, like, how exhausting it is, like, in hell, like, because like we said, like, there's lots of details that Ugolino leaves out. Right, like, I mean, for, especially for, like, these contos with the betrayers, like, everything they say is practically a lie. And so you have to, like, flip to the back and, like, read the footnotes and see, okay, like, what is actually going on? What are these people actually saying? Like, what are they hiding? And this whole time, I mean, yeah, it's been pretty exhausting reading through Inferno because every time we meet someone, we always have to treat them with distrust. We can never trust what they say. There's always details that they leave out, important information, like Paolo and Francesca, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, but honestly, like in life too, like when I'm when I'm working with people as a priest and like I don't know whether or not I can trust what they're saying or like the accuracy. So you're constantly gauging like how much of this is really true. It's exhausting, or someone who exaggerates everything, like that they like talk about like all of the like things that they can do, and you're like, is this true? Is this not true? And you're like spending energy trying to gauge that. That's part of the exhaustion of this journey of hell. Is like the people here are so deceptive. Like you're constantly wondering, yeah, like how much is this true? And that's true in real life as well. So, but then like after this, they keep going. And first of all, like Dante asks this question of like, what is this like wind, right? Mm-hmm. That's causing everything to be frozen. And Virgil's basically like, you're going to find out. Just wait. And we will find out in the very last canto. And it's pretty horrifying. But after this, like, whenever people weep, it's frozen, right? So he comes across this person who basically asks him to wipe his eyes even for a second. And this is a moment where Dante is actually going to be, like, we would think cruel. But it's actually, like, in some ways justice. And so this person asks to wipe his eyes, and he says, like, if I don't clear your eyes, may I go to the bottom of this icy hell? And Dante's actually like, he is going to go to the bottom of this icy hell. Like, uh, this is the, <laughs> this is, so he's speaking truth, right? Right. So he's even, oh, like, giving, he's even giving justice to them, right? He's speaking truth. He's not going to wipe his eyes, and he is in some ways betraying him, but he's like, this is what you married yourself to, so I'm going to give it to you, mm-hmm. right? Uh, again, like, part of the imagery, I think, of even all of hell is, like, 
your, your parents that catch you smoking a cigarette. So then they're like, all right, you're going to smoke the whole pack. And you get the whole pack and it like makes you sick, right? So it's like, all right, like you handed out betrayal. Here you go. Here's exactly what you want. Betrayal. Mm-hmm. So, and the thing about Brother Alberigo, who he like asks, he says like, I'm Brother Alberigo, the man who served the fruit in the bad garden. Here I'm paid back with interest, date for fig. And yeah, like we said, like now we're in the section of Ptolemy, which who was Ptolemy? So Ptolemy was, he was the governor of Jericho at the time, and he was the one during the Maccabean revolts when the Jews tried to basically revolt against the Greeks. He invited all the Maccabean brothers who were leading the revolt and killed them all at the dinner. Okay. And so that's why it's named after him. Yeah. So, and then Brother Alaberigo was a Guelph, and he apparently invited his like relatives for a dinner. And so this is like the traitor of guests. And the reason why like traitor of guests is even like worse than traitor of party is because of this like hospitality is super important. And even especially in like Jewish, like, and then like Jesus, whatever you do for the least of my brothers, you do for me. Like there's always meant to be like care for the widow and orphan and like care for the foreigners. Even like Old Testament, like you shall care for the foreigner for you yourselves were once foreigners in a foreign land. Right. right? So you're supposed to actually like take care of the guest and be hospitable to them because they are at your mercy. They are the least of the brothers and sisters, like they're helpless. Right. So here are like those who betrayed guests. And here you have Brother Alberigo who invited his family in as guests. And then when he gave the signal, his servants killed all of them. So that's who he is. And then it says like, and he's like, all right, like that's who I am. That's who these people are. Michael Zanch is mentioned who we saw earlier and evil claws. Like, so there's some like callbacks, but then like, Dante, he's like, all right, now, like, open my eyes, wipe. And Dante says, I did not open them. To be villainous to him was a courtesy. And that is the part that we were talking about where he married himself to betrayal, so he gives him betrayal. One more thing with this, and there's a person here, actually, who it says betrayed someone and... Who is actually still alive and won't actually die until years after Dante's own death. Yes. And so, and it's like, how is, is it possible that someone is in hell who hasn't died yet? And the answer that Dante gives is basically that, that what he did was so cruel and the betrayal was so evil that like a demon actually possesses him there on earth and his soul is in hell right now. And part of this is a callback to at the last supper when Judas is betraying Jesus and it says like Satan entered into him. Some ways here, like this person, like in betraying, like the the demon takes over. But part of it is this idea as well of that to like really marry yourself to sin while on earth, like makes life hell. Mm-hmm. So life is already hell. So what this person has done is like so terrible that like they're already living the reality of hell right now. And that gets us to the end of Canto 33. Right. So join us next time to finish off the end of the Inferno.